Amen. We are continuing our series. We're going book by book through the Bible. And today we're in the book of Psalms. And when I was planning out this sermon series this past summer during my sabbatical, this is one of those that I circled and said, I'm not sure how I'm going to preach one sermon on this entire book. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Why might I say that? Why might it be challenging to preach one sermon on the book of Psalms? Uh, one answer is it's a long book. It's the longest book of the Bible with 150 psalms, uh, or you might call them poems or songs. Another reason why it's difficult is there are multiple authors, and they're written over a, a wide period of time. So you're not just talking about one time period. Uh, there, it's also the book is broken into five different books, and there's a lot of different takes on why that, what that means and why that's significant. Uh, the Psalms cover a lot of different topics, a lot of different themes. There are a lot of different types of Psalms. And that's really what I decided to lean into this morning is talk about the different types of Psalms. And I'm going to uh, highlight some of the characteristics of the different types and then draw out a few truths that we can apply to our lives today. So I'm going to ask you to please turn to Psalm 1. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. As you're, sta- as you're standing and as you're turning, I want to mention when we use the word psalm singular and when we use the word psalms plural. If you're talking about a particular psalm, Psalm 23, it's Psalm 23. It's not Psalms 23 because it's a singular psalm. If we're talking about multiple psalms, like the wisdom psalms or the book of psalms, uh, then we use the plural. And so this morning we're not looking at Psalms 1, we're looking at Psalm 1. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we want to be like this blessed man, this blessed person who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. So use your word right now by your Spirit to equip us, to grow us, to be like a tree for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. This is the first type of psalm that we're going to talk about. It's Psalm 1 for a reason. It's it's, it's placed here in the book for a reason. And wisdom literature follows, uh, usually there's this theme of two different paths. You know, there's the path of the wise and there's the path of the fool. And Psalm 1 follows this pattern as it is typical wisdom literature. The one path is the the path of the few. The path of the wise is the path of the few. Notice it says blessed is the, the man, singular. And that's contrasted with the wicked, plural, the sinners, plural. So it's a, it's a, the, there's a path of wisdom, but it's not taken by many people. There's a path of the fool, and it's taken by most people. Another contrast between these two paths is the one is, is marked by blessing. It's not taken by many. It's the path of the wise man, but there's blessing that comes with it. The other path, there's judgment that comes with it. Verse 5 mentions judgment. Another distinction. One path leads to life and leads to flourishing. 
The other path leads to death and leads to perishing, verse 6. The the central image that we have in Psalm 1, which, by the way, imagery is one of the key characteristics of all poetry, not just Hebrew poetry, but it's this image of a tree. And the tree, you think about it, it's grounded. It's it's got water. it, It yields its fruit in its season. And the image of the tree is contrasted with the image of the chaff. The chaff is the outside of the grain that the farmer wants to break and throws up into the air so that the chaff can be blown. And the chaff is blown really whichever way the wind blows. It blows to the north, the chaff goes to the north. Not so with the tree. The wind can blow and the storms can come, but the tree is grounded. So it's a contrast in these images and it's a question. Which path do you want to take? You don't just become a tree overnight. You don't just become a tree automatically. How do you become a tree? How do you become grounded like a tree that can withstand weather? Well, verse 2 tells us. It says, The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In other words, he loves God's Word, and he meditates on it. He doesn't just read it. He meditates on it. When? How often? Day and night. So Psalm 1 is kind of like an invitation. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be like a tree planted by... Streams of water that's grounded in the midst of storms. Do you want to take the path that leads to life? Then then read these Psalms. Meditate on God's Word. Welcome to God's Word. Learn to read it. Learn to chew on it. Learn to meditate on it. And be blessed and, and take the path that leads to life. And so I just want to make a push this morning for reading the Psalms. Especially if you don't read the Bible at all. If you don't, if reading the Bible is not a part of your life at all, I would encourage you to start with the Psalms. It's a good place to start. Martin Luther referred to it as a little Bible because it contains all the major themes of the Bible in one book. And he actually gave instruction and said, if you can't read all the Bible and you can't read much of the Bible, just read the Psalms. Many of them are short. Some of them are longer. Psalm 119 comes to mind. Some of them are shorter. And, and here's what that means. You don't understand it. You don't get it. You don't resonate with it. It seems hard and awkward. That's fine. Just go to the next one. You know, there's, there's other good ones. And, and I want to make a push, especially this morning, for the idea of praying the Psalms. Have you ever used the Bible to inform your prayers? This is a great discipline to learn. And the Psalms are particularly good and helpful for using them for praying. You say, what does that look like? Sounds interesting. What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. You take a Psalm. Let's just say Psalm 1, for example. And you read it two or three times. It's only six verses, so no big deal. Right? And then you start going through line by line, verse by verse. You read the verse, you think about it, you meditate on it, and then you turn it into a prayer. So you use it for your prayer life. So verse 1 says, The blessed man is not influenced by the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. He doesn't walk with them, stand with them, or sit with them. And so you think about it. You say, Lord, help me to not be influenced by ungodly thought. And Lord, help me right now to think through what what are areas of my life that I'm letting in and I need to stop. Certain movies, certain shows, certain songs, certain people, certain media, perhaps. Show me any area I need to stop or or slow down what's coming in so that I'm grounded on Your Word. Your Word's what grounds me, not ungodliness. And then you exhaust that for yourself, and now now you're ready to pray for other people too. I pray for my children. I pray for my grandchildren. Pray for my friends. Pray for the people on my prayer list. And you use this prayer. Help, help him, help her to, to not be influenced by the ungodliness in his life, in her life. 
right? And then you just keep reading through, and pretty soon you're going to come to the image of the tree. And you think about that, and you meditate on it, and you contemplate it, a tree. Lord, help me to be like a tree. I'm in the middle of a storm right now. Help me to to stand strong like a tree, to be like the tree in Psalm 1. When's the last time you prayed, Lord, help me to be like a tree? And when's the last time your prayer sounded exactly like it sounded the day before and the day before and the day before, and you used the same phrases over and over and over? Right? If you're like me, sometimes your prayer life kind of gets rote, and you're just saying the same things. That's very normal. It's very natural. You say, is there some way I could breathe a little fresh life into my prayer life? Yes, there is. Use God's Word. Use the Psalms. And, and I mean, how could anything, how could only good not come, how could not only good come from that? Right? Using God's Word to inform your prayer life. To, the language of God's Word becomes the language of your prayers. The concepts of the Bible become the concepts of your prayers. I think only your prayer life can be transformed if you use the Bible to, to, to inform your prayer life. And by the way, I think your reading can be transformed too because you're reading for the purpose of meditation. You're reading for the purpose of application. And so it can, it can transform your reading as well. Well, for the sake of time, we need to transition and talk about praise psalms, another type of psalm. We, I think when we think of the psalms, we in, immediately think of praise, praise psalms. And it makes sense. The word praise occurs 166 times throughout these psalms. The, the phrase praise the Lord comes from the Hebrew word hallelujah. You praise the Lord. You praise Yah. Praise Yah. Hallelujah. And so we see that phrase 34 times. As you get toward the end of the Psalms, there's more and more praise psalms. So it sort of ends on this note. It's kind of getting louder and louder and more and more exciting as you, as you get to the end. And I just want to highlight a couple of characteristics that we see in praise psalms. So in order to find an example, to look at a particular example, let's turn to Psalm 100. This psalm is sometimes referred to as Old Hundredth. It's short, so I've chosen it because it's easy for us to deal with here. Two characteristics of praise psalms. These two characteristics are true of this particular praise psalm. First of all, there's the call to praise. Look at Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Verse 4. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. You know you're reading a praise psalm because it starts with a call to praise. Worship the Lord. And if you can't tell if it's a praise psalm or not, it's probably not a praise psalm. It's just obvious. It's just kind of coming off the page at you. Worship the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let let me give you a few more examples from a few more psalms just to give you a feel for it. Psalm 95, verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Psalm 96. O sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song. So the psalmist is oftentimes calling on God's people to worship the Lord, but sometimes the psalmist is calling on all of the earth to worship the Lord. For example, Psalm 100, verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. And sometimes all the earth includes non-humans. Look at Psalm 96, for example, verses 11 to 13. Let the sea roar. Let the field exult. 
Then shall all of the trees of the forest sing for joy. We have another image of a tree here. In Psalm 1, it was a firm tree planted by streams of water. But here, it's a forest made up of trees that are singing for joy. I love the image. It's a reminder to us, God is the king over all the earth. All of the earth belongs to him. It is my father's world. Right? He created all of it, and he created all of it for his glory and his praise. One day, the trees of the forest will sing for joy. What does that, what does, what does that mean? It means he's the king of it all. And everything, everything owes its existence to Him. And everything is created for the purpose of worship and glory of the one true and living God. This is the call to praise. The second characteristic of a praise psalm is the reason for the praise. Why? And typically it boils down to one of two things. Very simply, because He's the Creator and because He's the Redeemer. For example, look at Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Verse 5, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. See, verse 3, He made us. He made us. He's the Creator. Therefore, worship Him. But not just He made us, but we are His people. We are like sheep who belong to a shepherd. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. It's a very intimate image. And it says He loves us, verse 5. And it's not just a generic love, it's a covenantal love. His steadfast love. He will love us to the end. He has placed His affection on us, and He will love us to the end. So therefore, worship Him. The praise psalms remind us we are created for worship. We are worshiping creatures, and we're going to worship something. Everybody's worshiping something. The praise psalms orient us to the one who's worthy of our worship. And they bring us back. This is where your worship belongs, to Him. And I love the praise psalms because on one hand, they humble us. You're just one little part of the whole cosmos. The whole cosmos is designed for God's glory, and you're just one person who's worshiping Him. It's humbling to consider that. And yet at the same time, we are His. We are His sheep. We belong to Him. And His love has been placed on us and set on us. And it will not go away. It will be there forever. And so the praise psalms, in a sense, lift us up, even as we're lifting Him up. Because, yes, they humble us, but at the same time, they tell us we're His. And we're here for the purpose of praising Him. So we have the praise psalms. But now we're going to transition and talk about the lament psalms. Just like it's obvious when you read a praise psalm, you say, you just know it. In the same way, you just know it when you read a lament psalm. If you're not sure, it's probably not a lament. Lament psalms are the most common psalms. They make up a third of the book. And and to give you an example of one, let's turn to Psalm 42. And I'm going to highlight several characteristics of a lament psalm, and I'll go through Psalm 42 and show you how we see these characteristics in this particular psalm. Psalm 42, verse 1. The only way I know to say this verse is the way we have sung it. Right? I've, just learned, I've just heard it and sung it. The only way I can memorize it and, and, and repeat it without reading it. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. And we, we normally picture, I think, this dear, beautiful scenery, drinking water, thirsty, gets refreshed, 
But it's, it's, it's not meant to be this sort of beautiful scene. It's more of a cry for desperation. Like the, the deer is panting for the water and in desperate need in a dry land. And if you say, well, Chris, how do you know that? And are you sure you're not just kind of reading that into it? No, look at verse 3. Verse 3 helps us know this. Verse 3, he says, my tears have been my food day and night. He's been crying and not eating day and night. He's, he's miserable. And so the, the first characteristic of a praise psalm is the cry for help. And the psalmist here is crying for help. As a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. I've been lying in my bed crying, and that's been my food for days and for nights. So the, the, the lament psalms remind us we live in a broken world where we need to cry for help. The praise psalms don't remind us of that. The praise psalms remind us it is God's glorious world, and it's my Father's world, and it's wonderful. Praise the Lord, absolutely. So, but then the lament psalms remind us of the fact that we learn in Genesis 3. The truth that we learned last week in Job. It's a broken world. It's a fallen world. It's still a glorious world. It's still my Father's world. He's still to be worshipped and exalted. But a third of the psalms are reminding us it's a very broken world. It's a world where we have to cry out. And, and God delights in us crying out to Him. Just like you delight in your children crying out to you. Or your grandchildren. When they're hurt. When they're sad. When they're scared. You wish they'd never be sad or scared or hurt. You wish they never had to cry out at all. But if they're going to have to cry out, you want them to cry out to you, right? As a father, as a mother, as a grandparent, when your child cries to you, I'm scared, will you comfort me? Yes, I would delight to comfort you. That's why I'm here. God delights in us coming to Him and crying out to Him. I'm scared. I need, I, I, I'm, I'm in need here. You say, well, how do you know? Because he gave us all of these lament psalms. Why else would he give us these God-inspired lament psalms but to use them? You think he just gave them to us for us to be intellectually... Oh, that's interesting. Some guy somewhere thousands of years ago lamented and cried out to God. No. It's meant for you to take it and use it. A third of the psalms are there for you to turn around and use them in your lament. And they allow you to be, on one hand, honest... See, the Bible doesn't say, you just put a smile on your face and grin and bear it and say everything's great. It just doesn't say that. It says, here's some lament psalms to cry out to God when things are not great. And you don't have a smile on your face. And you are experiencing the brokenness of the world. Right? The Bible's serious about this and honest about this. And you can be honest. God wants you to be honest with Him. The proof is He's given you all these lament psalms that express all kinds of emotions around brokenness. The other good part of the lament psalms is they allow you to stay reverent. Because if you just are emotional and it's not grounded in God's Word, it could become pretty irreverent pretty quickly. So God's Word allows you to be honest and serious on one hand about your lament, but it also kind of keeps you grounded in between the rails, so to speak, so that you don't go off the rails in your lamenting and in your crying out. So we have the cry for help. That's the first characteristic of a lament psalm. The second characteristic of a lament psalm is, is the problem. Here's why I'm crying out for help. And the lament psalms, there's usually one of three. It's the psalmist himself, or it's God, or it's the psalmist's enemies. And the reason why I chose Psalm 42 is because he mentions all three. 
So I can illustrate all three using the same psalm. So first of all, the psalmist complains about himself. Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? My soul is cast down within me. This is what we call depression today. Depression is a reality. It's a genuine problem that we shouldn't minimize. But the emphasis in our world today, when people talk about depression, they often really quickly start saying, look to the external factors that are causing your internal depression. And the Bible certainly recognizes there are external factors that can cause our depression. But the Bible also recognizes this reality that another part of the equation is you. You're a part of the problem. You're a part of the equation. So when there's a problem, when there's depression, one place you have to look is within. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, why, David, why are you cast down? Chris, come on, what's wrong with you? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why is my soul cast down? One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher and also a medical doctor. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? See, the world says, listen to yourself, follow your heart. There's truth in there, right? I think biblical wisdom says, don't be listening to yourself so much. Start talking to yourself. The truth is in God's word. Here's the truth. You know the truth. Take the truth and speak it to yourself and start applying it, right? Problem number one is me. And the psalmist recognizes that. I'm crying for help, God. I need help. Problem number one, me, right? Here's the second problem that he mentions in the psalm, right? It's not mutually exclusive problems. The world's complex. Life is complex. People are complex. It's never just one problem. I'm part of the problem. And he also points to God as a part of this, the, the, the issue. Look at Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I love this contrasting imagery. In verse 1, I'm like a deer in need of water. Give me a drink. Verse 7, God, all of your waterfalls, your waves, and your breakers are drowning me. I just need a sip of water. You're drowning me here. You're flooding me here. Right? We talked about this last week. God is not to be blamed for evil. We have to affirm that truth. God is not to be blamed for evil, but He is sovereign and nothing happens outside of His sovereign will. And therefore the psalmist is saying, God, why? Psalm 42, 9, why have you forgotten me? The problem is you've forgotten me. God inspired Scripture here. Why have you forgotten me? Sometimes, oftentimes the question is, how long? Twenty times we see this phrase in the Psalms. God-inspired Psalms. Lament Psalms. How long? How long, O Lord, are we going to have to wait to see justice prevail? How long? It's an honest question. And, And God can handle our honest questions. And the Bible gives us the language to speak to ask our honest questions. You're welcome to ask Honest, serious questions of God. He would much rather you come to His face and cry and ask honest questions. How long? Where are you? Why have you forgotten me? Than to just sort of turn away stoically and say, I'll just grin and bear it and deal with it. That doesn't honor Him at all. What honors Him is when His children come to Him like a loving father and say, I am desperate here. 
I need you like a deer panting for water. Where are you? How long? Why have you forgotten me? Please remember me. This is the language of the Psalms. Third complaint that we see here, the psalmist complains about his enemies. Psalm 42, verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? This is a good reminder to us. David has actual physical enemies who are trying to kill him and take his life. And this is challenging for us to know how to apply these kind of verses because, you know, who, who is my enemy? And there's a really big difference between David, who's the king of Israel, and men are physically, literally, armies are trying to kill him. You know, and, and my enemy is like the person who's cutting me off on the road. And I'm tempted sometimes to pray imprecatory psalms against him. <laughs> and apparently I'm not the only person, because I just saw in the news a couple of days ago that there were 31,000 reports of road rage in the state of Colorado in 2022. 31,000, up 5% from the year before. Road rage is a real issue. I think I've been the recipient of it a time or two. I hope I've never been the cause of it a time or two, right? But it's a good reminder to us, we have to be cautious about who is my enemy that I'm praying an imprecatory prayer against. And Jesus did tell us we do have a very real enemy, and we are to pray, deliver me from the evil one, and so we certainly have an enemy and enemies in this sense, but I do think we have to be somewhat cautious and recognize we are in a slightly different situation than David was. So just bear that in mind before you pray the imprecatory prayer against your enemy. All right. We have the cry. We have the problem. I'm crying to you. Here's the problem. The third and the final characteristic of Lament Psalms is this word of confidence, a word of hope. I don't think there's one lament psalm that doesn't have some element, some ray of light. It may just be one line, but there's always some hope in every psalm, even lament psalm. For psalm 42, we see this ray of hope. It's actually repeated. So we see it in 42.5, and we also see it again in 42.11. Interestingly, we will also see it in 43.5 which has caused a lot of people to think these two psalms go together. Look at 42, verse 5. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. David is talking to himself, and he's saying, David, what is wrong with you? Why are you in turmoil within me? Put your hope in God. See, he's pointing himself to the solution. The solution is outside of himself. A lot of pop psychology today will tell you the solution's within. You just got to look within. Believe in yourself. Love, love yourself. Forgive yourself. Right? That is the mantra of the modern world. That's not the mantra of the Bible. Believe in yourself, forgive yourself, love yourself. The, the, the solution is to look outside of yourself. The problem is within yourself. The solution is outside of yourself. Look to God, hope in God. By the way, this is another advantage of using the lament psalms when you're down and out. I mentioned two earlier. You can be honest about it, your pain, your emotions. Number two, it keeps you reverent. But number three, it'll always bring you back to hope. It'll always point you to hope in God. And you need that. When you're down and out, you need someone pointing you to the hope, to the light. And the Psalms will do that. So, so here's my encouragement. As you're reading through the Psalms, find one or two lament Psalms that you really resonate with. Put them in your back pocket. 
and then pull them out on a rainy day and use them. And I just, I had totally forgotten about this, but this past week I was reminded when I was younger growing up, I I turned to Psalm 5 for some reason. Maybe it's because it was toward the beginning of the book and I hadn't gotten very far to the end. Psalm 5 resonated with me. Listen to my, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. So it's a good reminder to us. The Psalms are not just there for praise. The Psalms are there for lament. And they're there for crying out. One third of the Psalms are there for crying out. And this brings us now to talk about Thanksgiving Psalms. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Thanksgiving Psalms. I'm just going to say Thanksgiving Psalms are sort of a combination of praise and lament. In a Thanksgiving Psalm, it's typically something like this. I praise you, God, because I was down and out. And when I was down and out, I cried to you and you heard my cry and you rescued me. And now here I am praising you. So the lament is sort of in the past. In a lament psalm, the lament is in the present. I'm crying out now. In a Thanksgiving psalm, I was crying out. I cried to you. You heard me. You rescued me. Now I praise you. Uh, Psalm 40 comes to my mind. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He set my feet upon a rock. He made my footsteps firm. Many will see. Many will uh, see in fear. So put your hope in Him. He, He put a new song in my mouth. Some people have described it like this. Praise psalms are psalms of orientation where you are oriented to God. Life's good. Things are good. The world is all about God and His praise. Orientation. Psalms of lament are described as psalms of disorientation. Things are not right. I'm experiencing the chaos and the turmoil of the world. And psalms of reorientation would describe the thanksgiving psalms. I've been reoriented back to God. I was disoriented, but I've been reoriented, and therefore I I praise Him because of this. So I think this is a good time for me to point out these categories are not hard and fast. Some psalms might fall into multiple categories. There are categories I'm not able to mention here this morning. I have mentioned them, by the way, in other sermon series, if you want to go back and listen to those. Psalm of confidence, for example. Psalms of remembrance, for example. One person made the comment in one of the resources I was reading that you could hypothetically have 150 different types of psalms because you have 150 psalms. Uh, But it's helpful. Categories are helpful sometimes. And recognizing patterns are helpful. And recognizing characteristics and grouping things together. It's something we do in life. And that's a helpful thing. And that's what we're doing with the psalms. And this brings us to talk finally about kingship psalms. We've been emphasizing this theme throughout this sermon series. God is the king. It's his kingdom. It's his world. And it's helpful, I think, for us to maybe end on this note. There are some psalms that emphasize this theme of kingship. Now, under this general heading of kingship psalms, there's at least two different types of kingship psalms. So here's some subcategories. All right. Um, One type of kingship psalm are those psalms that just emphasize God is the king. He's the king of the world. For example, Psalm 24 starts out like this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And Psalm 24 ends like this. Who is this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. So some psalms emphasize God is the king over the whole world. Some kingship psalms, on the other hand, emphasize this idea that God has placed His King over His people. 
For example, he has placed David as king over Israel. And the, and the psalm is about the king. Maybe it's written by the king. Maybe it's written for the king. Maybe it's written about the king. About half of the titles in the psalms make reference to David. So this is a fairly common kind of situation. Uh, for example, Psalm 2-7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Israel's king, Israel's human king is referred to as God's son. He's God's anointed. He's God's son. And when you read the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us, applies this psalm to Jesus. It says, this is the language we think about and use for Jesus, God's king, God's son, the the, the king over Israel, God's Messiah. So it's kind of fun to notice the kingship psalms, the ones that refer to the human king, the human king over Israel, to to read them and to consider how they ultimately point to Jesus and how they're ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. It's it's fun to look at the Messianic Psalms and talk about how they point to Jesus and how they're fulfilled by Jesus. And you and I don't have to be smart enough to figure out which ones do that. The New Testament authors have already done that for us. So we can read the New Testament and see how the New Testament authors use the Psalms and talk about how the Psalms point to Jesus and are fulfilled by Jesus. By the way, which book of the Bible, which book of the Old Testament is the most quoted in the New Testament? The book of Psalms. The classic example is Psalm 110, which is referenced or referred to something like 27 times in the New Testament. Listen to how Psalm 110 begins. This is David speaking, David writing, And David says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So think about what's happening here. David the king is writing a psalm. And he begins his psalm by saying, The Lord. And it's literally Yahweh. We know that because in English it's all caps. Lord is all caps. Yahweh, David says, Yahweh says, speaks to my Lord. David, you're the king. Who's your Lord? We know Yahweh's your Lord, but you're not talking about Yahweh here because you said Yahweh speaks. Yahweh says, Yahweh says something to David's Lord. There's someone here who is in some way distinct from Yahweh and in some way distinct from David. Who is it? The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, David's Lord. Who is David's king? Who is David's Lord? And we know the answer. You keep reading. The New Testament tells us who it is. Jesus tells us who it is. Jesus tells us it's talking about Him. He's David's Lord. Wait a minute. I thought He was David's son. He's a son of David. Typically, sons are subservient to fathers, or should be. Right? How can He be David's king? And the New Testament bears this out and tells us. uh, He's he's greater than than David. He's, he's David's Lord. He's David's King. And as New Testament Christians, we read the whole Bible through this lens. We know this. We know He's the Messiah. He's the Promised One. We know He's come. And so that transforms how we read the whole Bible. We read the Bible knowing Jesus is the King. Um, so that doesn't mean that we, there's not a time and place to read the psalm in its original setting, original context. Who's the author? Who are the recipients? What did it mean? But we, we can't We can't read any part of the Scripture without asking the question, how is this ultimately pointing to Christ? Because He's the one that the whole story is pointing to. 
How is this ultimately pointing us to Christ given the fact that Christ has come? And so in light of that, here's what I want to do. I want to go back really quickly through the five different types of psalms and talk about how we should think about them in light of the fact that Christ has come. First of all, let's talk about the wisdom psalms. Wisdom literature lays out two paths, the path of the wise man and the path of the fool. Jesus came and walked the narrow path for us because we've all failed. None of us have walked the path perfectly. He walked it for us. That doesn't mean, therefore, we no longer care about wisdom. Jesus was wise. He was our perfect righteousness. Therefore, we don't have to think about wisdom anymore. False. Wisdom is still very important. But where do we find wisdom? We find it personified in the person of Jesus who came in the flesh and who delivered us and saved us from the path of the fool that leads to death that every single one of us naturally would head down. Let's talk about praise psalms. We're called to praise God. We praise Him first of all because of who He is. Who is He? The New Testament tells us He's the God who revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So the only way we can worship Him is through Jesus Christ. There's no way to worship God without worshiping Him as the God who revealed Himself in the person of Jesus. So we worship Him as Father. We worship Him as Son. We worship Him as Holy Spirit. We only know that because of the revelation of Jesus Christ revealed in the New Testament. It doesn't mean we get rid of the praise psalms. The praise psalms are just as glorious, even more glorious. But when we praise God, we praise Him for who He is, and who He is is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We now know that. We also praise God not just because He's our Creator. We praise Him because He's our Redeemer. Right? So we praise Him for what He's done. What has He done? He's created. He's redeemed. The New Testament tells us He created through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the agent through whom the Father created all things. Therefore, we can't worship God as Creator without worshiping God in the person of Jesus Christ. And we worship God, the the Savior. And how did He save us? He saved us through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. We can't praise God for our salvation apart from praising Him through Jesus. So the praise psalms have been uh, heightened, highlighted, in some ways transformed because of this new revelation we have that Jesus Christ is God's Son. Third, let's talk about the lament psalms. Even though this is God's glorious world, and even though we've been saved through Jesus Christ, guess what? We still experience suffering. We still experience the brokenness of this world. This is what we talked about last week when we looked at Job. We still lament. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, a third of the psalms are lament psalms. They outweigh the praise psalms in the sense that there's more of them. So perhaps... One application of that is expect more times of lament than times of, wow, everything's great. Right? Possible application. But here's the point. When Christ came, Christ gave us a new appreciation for suffering. He gave us a new appreciation for what it means to live in a broken world. He dignified suffering. Because our King came and suffered, He dignified suffering. And and what did Jesus do while he was suffering? How did Jesus lament? Guess what he did? He used God's word. He used the lament psalms. He used Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If it was a good enough pattern for Jesus to follow in using God's word and using lament psalms, perhaps it's a good enough pattern for us to follow and to use lament psalms in our suffering. 
But, but we learn from Jesus that a call to suffer for the glory of God is a high calling. And suffering is necessary on the pathway to exaltation and to glory. Jesus suffered and died, and that's what led to glory. And he said, you, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me to death, which will lead to exaltation and glory. So Jesus has dignified suffering for us, given us a new understanding of lament. Let's talk about Thanksgiving psalms. Remember what we said Thanksgiving psalms are? Praise God, because I was down and out. He, he heard me when I cried to Him and saved me, and now I praise Him. This is the pattern of most of our hymns and most of our praise songs. We praise God because we, were, we once were lost, but now we're found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's a, that's a Thanksgiving song. I was down and out. God saved me. Now I praise Him. I couldn't help but think of this when I have to reference it. I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord. I saw the light. Right? This is our story. We saw the light. We were in darkness. Now Jesus came. We're in the light. Finally, let's talk about kingship psalms. God is the king. All of creation will bow down to him. He's on the throne, and yet the New Testament tells us this king left his throne of glory and came and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God the Father highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the king who suffered for us one day, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess he's the king, he's the Lord. Think about that. One day you will, even if you're rejecting him now, one day you will be bowed before him on knee, recognizing Jesus is the Lord. Why wait until that day? Why not do it now? It's what's true, it's what's real. Why not bow the knee to him now? You can bow the knee before King Jesus right now. And not just you can... But don't you want to? Don't you want to bow the knee before the king, the one who created it all, the one who created you, the one for whom all things exist? Don't you want to? And not just he's the glorious king, but think about what he's done. The king left his throne to come to earth in order to lament. And he lamented so that he could turn our lamenting into praise. You were lamenting. Jesus came to lament for you. Why? So that your lamenting can be transformed into praise. All you have to do is go to Jesus and trust in Him and believe in what He did for you through His life, death, resurrection, and He'll become your King and you can follow Him for His glory and for your good. Make sure He's your King. Let's pray.